0: And good morning to everyone. Our, our mission statement here at Grace Community Church is, is fairly straightforward, uh, to delight in the glory of God and to declare that glory to the nations. To delight in the glory of God and to declare that glory to the nations. Uh, that's a big part of why we're gathering this afternoon at 5.30, and I'd really encourage you to, uh, to join us as we discuss and pray over how we are seeking to fulfill our mission, our vision of declaring God's glory to the nations. Uh, Mark Phillips is back. Great to see Mark back. And he's going to share a little bit tonight uh, concerning Tanzania. And then I'm going to speak briefly about an organization called Editora Fiel, working in Mozambique. Uh, Ike and Randy are going to speak of uh, the trip to Guatemala and Haiti, And how we're hoping to move forward there in terms of being involved in an orphanage in Guatemala. And then Ike and Cody are going to speak uh, briefly concerning Germany. And a uh, partnership we're developing there in terms of church planting in Frankfurt. And then Rick is going to finish us off with a report on the uh, recent trip to China. Yes, we're going to try to pack all of that into 45, 50 minutes. uh, But uh, you can see a lot planned for this evening A lot going on and much that we need to be lifting up before the Lord in prayer as we seek corporately to fulfill that mission statement, to delight in the glory of God, and to declare that glory uh, to the nations. As a bonus, pizza. So if nothing else gets you here tonight, maybe the pizza will, maybe not, I don't know, we'll see. But uh, we're looking to the Lord to richly bless us uh, this afternoon, later this afternoon, this evening. Turn with me in your Bibles to Mark, the book of Mark, chapter 4. And as you're turning there, let me share an excerpt from a paragraph of a book I read this past week. Um, as I read books, old and new, there are occasionally phrases, uh, sentences, concepts, truths that leap off the page. At times, entire paragraphs where I just have to stop and think to myself, Boy, I wish I'd said that. I wish I had, could be, was able to write like that, articulate things like that. And I had that experience this past week as I was reading a book. And I want to share with you a paragraph from the pen of Jerry Bridges uh, concerning the gospel and three points that he makes. And I think this will serve well as an introduction to our text today. And so Jerry Bridges writes, and pay close attention to this, Christians need to hear the gospel all of their lives. So we never get past hearing the gospel as believers. Because it is the gospel that reminds us That our day-to-day acceptance with God is not based on what we do, but upon what God did for us in His Son's sinless life and sin-bearing death. Did you catch all of that? A little bit of a mouthful. Let me try to repeat it. That uh, we must continually preach the gospel to ourselves. We never get over, never get past the ABCs of the gospel. Uh, we continually need to immerse ourselves in the gospel because it is the gospel that reminds us that our acceptance with God, our standing as Christians before God, does not depend on what we do for God. Rather, it depends entirely on what God has done for us in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and in particular, His sinless life, and his sin-bearing death. And so I believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as my Savior, meaning I am resting in Christ. I am resting in this wonderful truth that God has taken my sin, reckoned it to him, his sin-bearing death. He's paid the penalty for it in full. And I am resting in this equally glorious truth, exhilarating truth, his sinless life, that God has taken Christ's sinless life, the perfect life he lived, his righteousness, and he has reckoned it to me. That, my friend, is the gospel. But Jerry Bridges adds a second point. It's wonderful. And um, this is going to uh, cause a number of us just to to pause and and think and, and really try to grasp this. We stand, now he's speaking of Christians. We stand before God today as righteous as we will ever be. Oh, that's going to be a stumbling block for one or two of us, maybe more. Let me repeat it. We stand, as a Christian, we stand before God today as righteous as we will ever be, even in heaven because he has already clothed us with the righteousness of his Son. Now, Jerry Bridges does not deny that we're sinners still, as Christians, as believers. He's not denying the fact that we're being transformed into Christ's likeness, nor is he denying the fact that we're looking forward to a day when sin will be completely eradicated, we'll be conformed to the perfect likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the issue of sin will be gone. His point is simply this. That is not why God accepts us now. And that is not why God will accept us then. The righteousness, the basis upon which God accepts us, receives us, claims us as his own, is our righteousness now. And it is unchanging because it is the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that said, let me repeat the phrase. We as Christians stand before God today as righteous as we ever will be, even in heaven, because he has already clothed us with the righteousness of his Son. And then he adds a third truth. Therefore, this too is beautiful. I don't have to perform to be accepted by God. Now, I am free to obey God and serve God because I am already accepted in Christ my driving motivation now is not guilt but gratitude gratitude friend you want to grow in sanctification you want to grow in Christ likeness young people those of you who have been attending that uh, that book study on Sunday evenings a license to kill you want to mortify sin study the doctrine of justification. The key to sanctification is a firm grasp on justification. That as we understand what God has done for us in Christ, I find all the motivation I need. I find all the impetus I need to do something about my sin. I don't do something about my sin because I'm compelled by guilt. I don't do something about my sin because I'm compelled by a sense of duty. I don't do something about my sin because I think I must do so in order to please God and earn God's favor. No, I do something now about my sin. I seek to grow in sanctification as an express, expression of my gratitude as I understand the doctrine of justification. Christ's sinless life and Christ's sin-bearing death, mine. How shall we then continue in sin? God forbid, how illogical, how insensible, how, how, how nonsensical to continue in sin given what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. No, the motivation we need to deal with sin, to mortify sin, to grow in sanctification is found in the gospel, the doctrine of justification. Now that's key to the book of Mark. Because Mark begins this book by declaring what? Uh, The gospel, or the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so what is he unfolding for us in the 16 chapters that constitute this book? He is unfolding for us, laying before us the beginning of this gospel, this good news concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our study of this good news, we come now to Mark chapter 4. And I invite you to follow along as I read the first 34 verses. Again, he, that is Christ, began to teach beside the sea. And a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea. And the whole crowd was beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables. And in his teaching he said to them, listen. growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And he said, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, those around him with the 12, the 12 disciples, asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word, and those, these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear, Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground, the ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are the ones sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit, thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And he said to them, Is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he said to them, Pay attention to what you hear. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, and still more will be added to you. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger then all the garden plants, and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them. As they were able to hear it, he did not speak to them without a parable. But privately, to his own disciples, he explained everything. Now, that's quite a lot to process, isn't it? Um, I think three questions will help us. Three questions, you'll see them in the sermon notes. If we simply throw these three questions out, ask them, and uh, try to answer them based on the text, we'll grasp what is here. There is a great deal, but by answering these three, I think that will point us in the right direction. So question number one is this. This has to be the starting point. What is a parable? What is Mark talking about? What is a parable? Look back in chapter 3, verse 23. And he called them to him and said to them in parables. Parables. Now into chapter 4, where we just read verse 2. And he was teaching them many things in parables. Again, chapter 4, toward the end, verse 33. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. And so Mark is emphasizing the fact that at this stage, at this particular moment, in Christ's public ministry, he is teaching in parables. What are they? Three things we need to grasp. Number one, they are figures of speech. And so a parable is a figure of speech. It is a way of talking. And so we use different figures of speech all the time with one another, don't we? Metaphors, similes, all these sorts of things. So too the Bible employs numerous figures of speech. We need to grasp these, we need to understand these, we need to be able to recognize these because as we read God's word we're going to encounter them and if we can't identify them or understand them we are going to fall into misinterpretation and misapplication. So I referred earlier to the the study that the youth are doing, License to Kill, great title, based on John Owen's The Mortification of Sin. So how to mortify sin in the life of a believer. I think it was in the first study. Maybe it was the last study. I think it was the first study. Uh, Reference was made to Matthew chapter 5, where the Lord Jesus commands us to do what? If your right eye causes you to sin, if your right eye causes you to stumble, tear it out and throw it away from you. If your right hand causes you to sin, to stumble, cut it off and throw it away from you. Really? What's that all about? It is a figure of Speech, known as what? Hyperbole. What is hyperbole? When we employ exaggeration in order to emphasize a point. The Bible is chock full of figures of speech, friends. We need to identify that and understand it, because if we don't, we will enter into the Word of God, and it will turn into a labyrinth from which we will never emerge. Lots of figures of speech, and we need to understand that. In this context now, Mark chapter 4, the Lord Jesus is using... A figure of speech, known as parable. So it's a figure of speech. Second thing we need to understand about parables is this. A parable uses something from everyday life in order to make a comparison. A parable uses something common to those who are hearing, common to those who are listening uses something from everyday life in order to make a comparison. In the context of scripture, an agricultural society. And so most of the parables appeal to what? Something related to agriculture. Why? Because Christ's audience, they lived in an agricultural society. This was their day-in, day-out experience. And so they were able to build the bridge and make the connections with these comparisons that the Lord Jesus was making third thing we need to understand about parables is this. A parable teaches a spiritual truth. We don't get lost in the details because the details actually aren't what's important. There is a truth that is being conveyed, and it is that truth that we must seek to identify. So that's question number one. What is a parable? Question number two is this. Why does Christ speak in parables? That's what the disciples want to know. Verse 10. Uh, They've been with him some now, some time now in his public ministry. Uh, They've seen the miracles. They've witnessed the miracles, manifestation of his authority. They've heard his teaching. Now all of a sudden, seemingly out of the blue, he begins to address people in parables. And the disciples are left wondering, "What's, what's, what's that all about? Where did that come from? Why this shifting gears? Why, why this change in emphasis? And so they ask the Lord Jesus, why are you now speaking in parables? That doesn't make any sense at all. And Christ responds in the 11th verse. Here's his answer. Here's why he is speaking in parables. To you, he's speaking to the 12. Has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, outside of what? The kingdom of God. Everything is in Parables, why? Verse 12, so that they may indeed see but not perceive. They may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now that is a little confusing, admittedly. Context, context, and for good keeping, context. There is an immediate context, which is what? The first three chapters. What has Mark done in the first two chapters? He has made it clear who the Lord Jesus is. He is the Son of God. And he has shown it through the witness of John the Baptist, through the audible voice of God the Father, through Christ's testing at the hands of the devil in the wilderness. He has manifested Christ's authority, his identity, by emphasizing the miracles Christ's power to heal, Christ's power to cast out demons through his, own, through his own declarations, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And so in the first two chapters, Mark's objective is very clear, to reveal who the Lord Jesus is. We come to the third chapter, and what do we find? How people respond to that revelation. And the, respond, the response is pretty diverse. And so we have the crowds, and in the crowds we see enthusiasm. But the enthusiasm is what? It is misplaced. It is misguided. They are drawn to the Lord Jesus Christ because of what he is doing. They are drawn to Christ because of his miracles. But they do not see beyond the miracles to Christ himself, who he is. And then we have the brothers. Christ's half-brothers. His siblings. And in them we see skepticism. As they see and hear what the Lord Jesus is doing, and as they are confronted with Christ's authority, what is their response? What is their conclusion? He is out of his mind. And then we have the scribes. And in the scribes we see what? Antagonism. That as they hear of what Christ is doing, as they see with their own eyes what Christ is doing, their conclusion is what? He has a demon. And so in the crowds we have enthusiasm misplaced. In in the brothers we have skepticism. He is out of his mind. In the scribes, we have antagonism. He has a demon. And in the disciples, 11, excluding the son of perdition, Judas, what do we have? Those who actually believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who actually do the will of the Father. And so in chapter 3, Mark is making what plain? That there is a growing division in terms of how people respond to this revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ the king has come. The kingdom has come. And yet all people are not receiving that kingdom equally. There is a division arising between those who are on the outside and those who are inside. Between those who reject the Lord Jesus Christ those who receive the Lord Jesus Christ do the will of his Father, thereby becoming his mother, his brothers. Their tie, their relationship with him becoming closer than familial ties as they enter his family, as they enter the kingdom. And now the Lord Jesus Christ speaks in parables. Why? To solidify this distinction. Look, there are some who are outside. There are some who are inside. From now on, I speak in parables to point to this growing distinction and to declare to those on the outside, judgment has fallen. Judgment has fallen. Now, the immediate context, the the distant context, that was the immediate context, the distant context is what? In verse 12, Mark points us to the Old Testament. He sends us all the way back to the book of Isaiah, in particular, Isaiah chapter 6. Most of us will be familiar with Isaiah chapter 6. It begins, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, highly exalted and lifted up, the train of his robe filling the temple. And we have this wonderful theophany, this revelation of the glory of God, which Isaiah beholds. God then commissions Isaiah to go to his people of Israel and command them to repent. And he tells them, you go, and they will see, but they will not perceive. They will hear, but they will not understand. Now Mark takes those verses from Isaiah 6, fast forward centuries, hundreds of years, and he applies them to what is now happening in the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he is drawing a direct parallel between Isaiah chapter 6, I know this is a little complicated, stay with me, between Isaiah chapter 6 and Mark chapter 4. He is emphasizing the fact that in both, God's kingship is in view. You read the first five chapters of Isaiah, and Isaiah is emphasizing that Yahweh is Lord. And it comes to a head in the opening verses of Isaiah chapter 6. That is precisely what Mark has done. He has shown us that Christ is king in the opening chapters of his book. And just as in Isaiah 6, God sends his servant to preach to his people and to command them to repent, So too, God's anointed servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been sent forth. His message is simple. Repent and believe in the gospel. As in the case in Isaiah 6, that as Isaiah goes forth with that message, it falls on deaf ears. People will not listen. And as a matter of fact, they hide themselves in a cloak of religion. How dare you speak to us, God's people, in that way? We're offering sacrifices right, left, and center. We've got the temple. We've got this. We've got all this ritual. We've got this glorious religion. How dare you tell us that God has rejected us? So too, in the instance of Christ's ministry, he comes now repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he commands men and women to believe in him, to believe in the gospel. And what is the response on the part of the religious leaders? They hide themselves in a cloak of piety. They mask themselves in a cloak of religion. They hide behind their man-made traditions and their man-made regulations. How dare you call us to repent? We're the religious ones. We're the God-fearing ones. We're the God-serving ones. And so just as in the case of Isaiah, the message falls on deaf ears, God confirms their hardness of heart By confirming them in their sin and rebellion. Isaiah, go now and preach. And Isaiah, understand this. It's not going to be a very successful preaching ministry. Isaiah, buddy, if you're looking for numbers, boy, you're setting yourself up for disappointment. Yours will not be a message of salvation. It will be a confirmation of coming judgment. They will hear, they will see, but they will not perceive. They have crossed a line from which they will not return. And now the Lord Jesus Christ has done precisely the same thing in the case of Israel as epitomized in the religious leaders, the religious elite, because of their hardness of heart. He is now confirming them in their sin and rebellion. And from this time forward, anything related to the kingdom of God, he will only speak to them in parables. Why? They'll hear. They'll see. But they are not going to get it. Lest they turn at seeking forgiveness. Judgment has come. Judgment has fallen. And so why does the Lord Jesus address them in parables? To declare to those outside, those who have rejected him, that judgment has fallen. He he speaks in parables as a dire warning. To those multitudes, those crowds with their misplaced enthusiasm who are still wavering on the fence. And he speaks now in parables. Why? To encourage his disciples. To make them understand what? That to them has been given. By whom? God. It's God's sovereign grace. To them it has been given to understand the secret of the kingdom. It brings us to the third question. What does Christ say in these parables? What's his point? We find that answer as well in the 11th verse. He said to them, To you, okay, what has been given? The secret of the kingdom of God. That's Christ's message in these parables the secret of the kingdom of God. We read the Old Testament and we only find that phrase, kingdom of God, maybe a half dozen times. It's a little misleading. Because in actual fact, the entire theme of the Old Testament is the kingdom of God. It's prophetic. It is pointing to a coming time when God will redeem his people. God will restore his creation, renew his creation, the kingdom of God. But what is secret concerning the kingdom of God is this. That it will be inaugurated at the time of Christ's first coming. It will not be consummated until the time of Christ's second coming. And so there are two manifestations to the kingdom of God. There is a present, invisible, spiritual reality, kingdom. And there is a future, material, visible reality. That's why in the Lord's Prayer, when we come before God and we address God, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, reverenced be your name, your kingdom come. What are we praying for? We're praying firstly for the consummation. We are praying for Christ's second return when sin will be eradicated. There will be a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. But so too when we pray your kingdom comes. We are praying secondly concerning the present spiritual kingdom, the advancement, the furtherance, the progress of God's reign, Christ's reign, in the lives of his people right now. This is the secret of the kingdom of God. And this is what the Lord Jesus is revealing to his disciples, and what he is emphasizing in the parables is this, that this kingdom is going to begin in humiliation, completely contrary to what the Jews expected and were anticipating. It's going to begin small. It's going to begin really in a miserable, dejected, rejected form, and it's going to grow into something marvelous. And this is going to be done by the power of God's spirit. And this is going to be done through the proclamation of God's word. This is the secret of the kingdom of God. And so he tells them four parables. And in these parables, he emphasizes those truths. And in particular, he emphasizes this secret, how the kingdom will be spread, not by throwing, overthrowing the Romans, not by some sort of political involvement or involvement in social causes, not through any of those means, The kingdom will advance through the word of God. And he makes four points concerning the word of God in these four parables. And so we begin with the first, the parable of the sower. And what's Christ's point here? It simply concerns the word received. The word received. And so in this parable, a sower, a farmer, goes out to sow. And he has his bag, his seed, and he's throwing this seed everywhere. And the seed is the word of God. The parable makes it clear. It's the sowing of the word of God. The proclamation, dissemination of the word of God. And this seed falls on four different kinds of ground. And so firstly, some of this seed falls on a pathway. Pathway is hard. The seed cannot penetrate the pathway. And so that seed becomes what? Food for the birds. And so back in the spring, my front lawn was a mess, still is a mess, bought a bunch of grass seed, started throwing it here, there, and everywhere. A lot of it fell on the driveway. No chance at all. Right? Why? It's not going to penetrate cement. And the birds come and they feed on it. That's Christ's point here. That the word goes out. It is sown. The word is proclaimed. But the word as it is sown, occasionally it falls on hearts that can only be compared to a hardened pathway. It cannot penetrate. And so what happens? The birds snatch it away. The birds represent whom? Christ makes it clear. The devil. The devil snatches it away. So it pains me to say it. But I suppose I have to say it. But even here right now, we have people who are like the the pathway. Right? I mean, that's not a pleasant thing to say. But it would likely be inexcusable of me not to say it. That right now, here, gathered in this room, the seed is being thrown out there, sown. The word is being proclaimed. And yet for, for, for some of us, the heart, the heart is so hard, it can only be compared to a cement driveway. It can only be compared to a pathway. And so the word just sort of lies there on the surface and the devil snatches it away. And so for some, um, this right now is actually quite painful. Hearing God's word... Um, the only question running through the head is this. When's this sermon going to be over? So that I can get on to something far more interesting like watching paint dry. Uh, that, that, is, that is the mindset. There is a hardness. There is, there is an insensibility. And the word, these seeds sown, they can't, they can't find their way in. There is no access point. So there's no hope for germination. There's no hope for growth. There is no hope for But secondly, some of that seed falls where? It falls among the rocks. And so the rocks aren't quite hard as as a pathway, which is impenetrable. But there's rocks, there are openings, and there's a little bit of soil. And the seed falls there. It germinates quickly, grows quickly. But there's no root because there's no depth to the soil. And then the sun comes out. And what happens under a good Texas sun? It withers and burns everything in sight. And if there's no root, there is no hope. That's what happens here. And so, too, the Lord Jesus Christ's point is this. Look, the word is sown. How is it received? At times it's received like a pathway, a completely hardened heart. At times it's received like soil found among rocks, that initially it's received with joy. Oh, there's lots of excitement. There's lots of enthusiasm. But there is no root. And as soon as affliction arises, as soon as the burning sun comes out, as soon as there is persecution, as soon as there is trouble, What happens to that little shoot that has appeared? It is burned up and it withers. And so too, I I suppose there are people like that here this morning, right? Uh, Lots of people like that who who hear the word of God and initially, they're pretty enthusiastic about it. Um, Lots of joy. Lots of excitement. The only problem is no one ever told them trouble was coming. No one ever told them. They had to pick up their cross and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. No one ever told them that their life now as a Christian might actually be more difficult than their life before they became a Christian. They just thought it was going to be happy clappy. My dreams are going to come true. Christ Jesus, praise Jesus, is going to solve all my problems. And he's going to make everything great. You hear that from Joel Olstein, you hear that from Joyce Meyer, we hear that all over the place today. It has a stranglehold on the church. That, that, that everything's just going to Be fantastic. Visualize it. You'll move toward it. And praise Jesus, somehow it'll come true and all your dreams will come true. And then the hard, harsh reality hits home that the Christian journey is exceedingly difficult. It is a journey fraught with danger and affliction and opposition. And these people have no root. And because there is no root, when trouble rears its ugly head, they are nowhere to be seen. And then there's a third type of soil, ground. Uh, The thorns. And so the seed falls among the thorns. And initially it germinates. It shoots up through the earth. But it has no place to go. The thorns grow over it, all around it, and choke it. So staying with my front lawn, boy, I've got Texas-sized weeds on my front lawn. And rather than deal with those weeds, I just threw that seed out there. What chance did it have against those weeds? Just overgrowing them. And this is the case here that, yes, the seed is sown at times. People receive it. But there are thorns that choke it out. And what are these thorns? The Lord Jesus says the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pursuit of all that this world has to offer. So in the case of the rocky ground, it is adversity that burns up those shoots, those plants. In the case of the thorny ground, it is prosperity that ruins this seed it is so extremely difficult soil to identify today uh, at one time at one time the church required us to give up love for the world in order to join her but today the church does not require people to surrender their love for the world to join it i mentioned joel olstein i mentioned joyce meyer Myers. there are plenty others we could add to that list that in actual fact the church today preaches what preaches your health, preaches it's your prosperity, tells you all is going to be well, tells you God wants all of these things for you, tells you that the pursuit of wealth is completely compatible with a self-sacrificial life lived and taught by the Lord Jesus Christ, tells you that that is Christ's desire and goal and object for you. And so we find that within today's church, people don't fall away because there is this dilemma, they face this dilemma between the unbridled pursuit of prosperity and self-serving sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. What they find in the church today is a very comfortable home because they they find the church actually proclaiming that very thing as opposed to a biblical gospel. And there's a fourth kind of soil, fourth kind of earth. It is what? The good soil. It's the soil that's been tilled. It's the soil that's been prepared. And when that seed enters, it germinates, the root goes deep, the shoot springs forth, breaks the surface, it grows up, and it produces what? Fruit. Fruit. Now Christ's point in these parables is what? The pathway represents whom? The scribes and the Pharisees? They're so hard, the seed is not entering. The thorns and the rocks represent whom? The crowds who are still wavering on the fence. The good soil represents whom? The disciples. Those who do the will of my Father. That as they come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that faith is manifested in fruit. That's the first parable. The word received. The second parable in verses 21 through 25. The word proclaimed. And here he makes a comparison. He takes a lamp, gets away from the agricultural metaphor for a moment. He says, look, you have a lamp, you bring it into the house. No one in their right mind puts it under a basket. Why would you do that? No one puts it under a bed. That would serve no purpose at all. You put it on a stand. Why? Because a light serves a very utilitarian function, which is what? To illuminate, to penetrate the darkness, to shine so that we can see. And again, he is comparing the biblical Christ, the biblical gospel to this lamp, to this light that is to shine forth. And he is emphasizing the fact that, yes, the word is received, and the word is received as it is proclaimed, as it is manifested. And here he is pointing again to his own mission that he has come as a preacher. He is pointing again to the mission of his disciples. He has sent them forth as preachers. He is pointing to the mission of his kingdom, his church, which is the proclamation, the spread of his word. We do not take what God has given us and hide it and keep it to ourselves. No, it is to shine forth. It is the word proclaimed. And then the third parable. The parable of the scattered seed, verses 26 through 29. We see the word Applied. Verse 26, he said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps. He's done all he can do. Once he has spread that seed, that's it. His function is ended. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. Notice this next phrase at the end of verse 27. He knows not. How? There's the word. Applied That the word received, it is, as we spread the word, proclaim the word, it is going to land on these four types of ground. The word proclaimed, it is our responsibility to proclaim it. We are to act like lights shining forth in the midst of the darkness. At times, it finds that good soil and it produces wonderful fruit. When it does, we do not know how it does it. As we proclaim the word of God, having proclaimed it, having declared it, having having spoken it into the lives of those whom God brings into our life, we have done all that we can do. It is then a work, sovereign work of the Spirit of God to take that word, implant it deep within so that it takes hold, takes hold of the mind whereby people understand it, takes hold of the heart whereby people love it, takes hold of the will whereby people begin to live their lives in conformity to it. But that is not something we do. We are completely powerless when it comes to the germination of that seed in the ground. So too we are completely powerless when it comes to the germination of the word of God in the hearts of men and women. It is the spirit that applies it, bearing forth that fruit. And then the fourth parable. The parable of the mustard seed, verses 30 through 32. And here we see the word magnified, 30th verse. He said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God? Or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, unspectacular, rather insignificant, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. There is an allusion here back to the book of Ezekiel. I think it's chapter 17, where these birds actually represent kingdoms. These birds actually represent nations. And so, what point is the Lord Jesus making? He's already made the point concerning the word received, four different ways in which it will be received, four different types of ground. He's made the point in terms of the word proclaimed, our responsibility to shine forth, to declare it. He's made his point concerning the word applied. It is the Spirit of God that must work, producing this fruit. Now, his point is simply this the word magnified, that the kingdom has small beginnings. The Lord Jesus Christ at this stage is comparable to a mustard seed. How many followers does he have? Twelve, one of whom is a son of perdition. He is a mustard seed. He has come in humiliation. There is nothing spectacular about him. As a matter of fact, he is very unspectacular. And yet the promise is what? That as the word is proclaimed, that as the spirit works, the seed germinates and grows and becomes what? A great tree in which the birds of the air nest, a great kingdom encompassing the nations. And so look back 2,000 years. And it's just a mustard seed. Don't be fooled by the great crowds. The great crowds do not stick around when it comes to the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has a band, a very small band of followers upon whom he will build this kingdom. And now look at this kingdom today. Think of some of the places we're going to hear about later this afternoon. Think of the nations, the languages, the tribes, the people's groups this very day who are worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that the seed has become a great tree through the proclamation of the word and through the work of the Spirit of God. Christian, understand this. This is the secret of the kingdom. The Word of God is the power of God in the hands of the Spirit of God. And it is how the Lord Jesus builds his kingdom. The kingdom will not come through the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It will not come through Obama or Romney. It will not come through the Senate. It will not come through our political institution. The kingdom will not come through our involvement in a plethora of social causes, however good they may be and however, however important they may be as an expression of what it means for us to love our neighbor. The kingdom will not come through these things. Here is the secret. The kingdom comes through the word of God, in the spirit of God, manifesting forth the power of God. And it is transformed this kingdom... From a mere mustard seed in the days of Christ to our present day, a great tree encompassing the nations of the earth. Now hear what the Lord Jesus says. There's a command here. Verse 9, verse 23. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. How's your hearing? I'm not talking about audible. Can you hear my voice right now? I mean, do you get what Christ is saying? Do we perceive it? Do we understand it, not merely cognitively, but do we take it to heart? He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let us hear, firstly, a word of challenge. A word of challenge that emerges from the first parable and those different types of soil. It begs a question. What is the condition of our heart? Let me be even more upfront, blunt. Friend, do you have... A hard heart. Are you like the pathway? Do you have a hard heart? It amazes me as I read scripture at uh, the hardness of man's heart. I suppose it shouldn't amaze me given the seriousness of sin. But you think back on someone like Cain. Why didn't Cain repent? Cain was only one generation removed from the creation of the entire cosmos. Right? What kind of proof did he need? Why didn't Pharaoh repent? Pharaoh witnessed ten terrible plagues culminating in the death of the firstborn in Egypt. What kind of proof did he need? Refused to repent. Ahab refused to repent. He's there on the mountain and he sees with his own eyes the fire descend from heaven above and consume the sacrifice right before him. These men saw and yet did not perceive. These men heard, and yet never understood. This is the dilemma of a hard heart. Now in Christ's own day, as he casts out demons, he heals paralytics, he heals lepers, he performs wondrous works in the sight of men. Their hardness of heart has such a grip on them that they refuse to repent. Friend, understand, if you fit into that category, understand that your issue is not intellectual. So many people object intellectually to the Christian faith. The issue is not intellectual. There is no issue concerning proof. The issue is moral. The issue is not proof. The issue is persuasion. He who is convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. That's how we explain Pharaoh. That's how you explain Cain. That's how you explain Ahab. That's how you explain the scribes of Christ's day. That's how you explain the hardness of man's heart today. The issue is Not proof. The issue is moral. It is persuasion. And your only hope is the sovereign grace of God. Your only hope is that the Spirit of God manifests His power in breaking the hardness of your heart. That the seed of His word might penetrate. That it might germinate. And that He might bring forth that fruit that is pleasing in God's sight. Friend, do you have a divided heart? That's seen in the the thorns and the rocks. That seed that falls among the rocks, no root. Sun comes out and burns it. That's adversity. The seed that falls among the thorns, the thorns choke it. That's prosperity. Friend, do you fear something more than God? If so, you're merely rocky soil. Friend, do you love something more than God? If so, you're merely that soil which lies among the four. Again, the church has done a great disservice to these people in our day because the church describes these people as nominal Christians. You know what the problem is with nominal Christianity? It's never mentioned in the Bible. The Bible speaks of apostasy. That's what these people are in the light of this parable that to fear something more than God adversity is apostasy to love something more than God prosperity is apostasy friend do you have a divided heart a divided heart is a sickly heart and a divided heart can only be made whole by the spirit of God thirdly friend do you have a sincere heart Are we like the good soil into which the seed falls? How do we know? We know simply because Christ makes it clear in every instance that seed does what? It grows and it? It bears fruit. Jeremiah cries in the 15th chapter of his book. Your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. That's good soil. Secondly, by way of comfort, a word of comfort. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And this comes out of the second, third, and fourth parables. In these, we see the Christian's responsibility, the word proclaimed. The Spirit's efficacy, the word applied. And the kingdom's destiny, the word magnified. Here is the secret of the kingdom of God, that it has been inaugurated, but it has not yet been consummated. And as we live in this present day, these last days, Christ is building his spiritual kingdom through the proclamation of the gospel, through the proclamation of his word. And that's why I began full circle right back to the beginning, that quote from Jerry Bridges. And that wonderful summation of the gospel. That I, as a Christian, I preach the gospel to myself every day. Why? To continually remind myself that God's acceptance of me is not based on what I do. God's acceptance of me is based on what Christ has done. His sinless life reckoned to me whereby I am as righteous now as I will ever be in terms of my standing in the sight of God. And Christ's sin-bearing death, whereby God has taken all my sin, reckoned it to Christ, dealt with it in full at Calvary's cross, where Christ bore his Father's wrath on my behalf. That is the word. That is the seed that is sown. And this word of God is the power of God in the hand of the Spirit of God for the building of the kingdom of God. Bow with me as we close with a word of prayer. Our Father, we pray, open our eyes that we may behold wondrous things out of your word. Teach us, the way of your statutes. Lead us in the path of your commands. Turn our eyes from worthless things. And, Father, let us rejoice in your steadfast love. In the matchless name of the Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen.